to High Level. My name is Axel Arsola, and today I have the pleasure to interview my friend Scott Maseri. Hey, it's good to see you. You too. Thank you so much for letting us come in here. Scott received his law degree from Vanderbilt University, where he was a Dean Scholar and served on the editorial board of the Vanderbilt Journal of Transnational Law. He founded Maseri Law Group and has helped create tens of millions of dollars in value for his clients through trials, settlements, and successful deals. In 2013, Scott created Push to Start, a revolutionary online legal service for entrepreneurs. Clients pay one flat fee, and Push to Start forms their company with the states, gets federal tax ID from the IRS, and drafts all of the necessary documents that establish and govern their business. He also coaches a high school mock trial team that has taken multiple awards at national and international competitions. Scott is a founding board member of the Chattanooga Film Festival. He's also a very good screenwriter, and I'm trying to convince him to make a feature film with me later this year. Let's see how that goes. <laughs> I'm really happy to have you here because you're one of those people that I know you're supposed to fit this model, but you don't. And I really like that because I see myself as one of those people that should follow this model, but I'm, I'm trying not to follow anyone's model. And I really admired that from you. So I wanted to ask you why being so smart and so good in school, instead of going to work for a big law firm and follow a big lawyer career, you decide to go and create your own firm? Well, first of all, I don't know that necessarily smart to get through law school, but thank you for the compliment. <laughs> the decision to forego sort of the traditional lawyer, associate, junior partner, partner path was um, a combination of a conscious decision plus circumstances at the time. So I graduated law school in 2007, and that was right at the beginning of the housing crisis, of the economic downturn, of the, the recession, okay? So right at that point, uh, law firms began tightening up their reins on their hiring. Um, so when I went into law school, there was this essentially promise that you'll get out and you'll go to a big law firm in, in a big city and you'll make a nice salary and you work lots of hours, which wasn't really appealing to me in the first place. Typical associates might work 18 to 20 hours a day. You don't, you know, you don't get to see time with family. You don't come up for air. Sometimes they don't let you out of the building. I, I know uh, guys at law firms in big cities that have slept, they have provide beds at the law firm so that they can sleep when they're not at work. I mean, it's horrible. Um, my background in law school was both international and um, sort of entrepreneurial law. Uh, so when I got out, wasn't necessarily looking for that big law thing. So, but at the same time, the kind of the, the market for jobs in traditional law firms really went in the tank in the, the next, over the next year. So I was in with a firm, um, in Atlanta as an associate doing the, they weren't, they're a medium sized law firm. We're not a, a super small, but we're not big by any means. I immediately thought I can do this. I mean, there's this, there's this big mystique, right? When you go to school about, oh, you're gonna get out and work for a law firm and then you don't learn about how any of the actual day-to-day -day practice of law works. You just know that you're gonna go there and work a lot of hours and do what they tell you to do. Well, I got in and realized there was no magic secret they're just running a business and they're billing clients that way. And so I spent the next year kind of figuring out how that was done. I thought I can do that myself. So that timed with the market, there was not a lot of um, 
jobs in the marketplace. We made a move back to Chattanooga, where we're both from. So it was this combination of an entrepreneurial push, but there was also like, I think sometimes the best moves you can make are moves that you make. Desperation is not the right word, but you're pushed out of the nest, essentially. If you've got a cushy job, you've got a career at a big company, you're not necessarily motivated to get out and make the same kind of moves that someone that's in a position where they have to hustle is put in. And so I think sometimes that we as entrepreneurs are put in positions in which we have to sink or swim, and that's where you're very successful. If you think back to uh, you know a lot of the entrepreneurs in history, uh, Richard Branson failed at a lot of different companies. We had to do something very successful in order to stay afloat. Uh, you don't hear a lot of stories where guys are at cushy companies and they just magically create you know, the next great product. These are guys that have abandoned all of the nice security and safety zone areas, the comfort zones that they're used to, and they're out there without a safety wire. They're out creating and they're out hustling, and, and you do that because you have to, because there is no choice. So I think that I was fortunate in that I was sort of pushed out of the net and the safety wires were kind of taken off of me and I thought, well, I don't have to wait seven years or something to create uh, something or go out into business myself. I kind of had to. So when you kind of have to, then you, you make a success of it. So what would be your advice for someone who might be working as a professional right now and either the circumstances are pushing them out of the nest or they just have that dream how can they make that transition? Right. It's tough because, you know, it's one thing to go out and um, do something on the side. So we should distinguish the side hustle, which is a great thing. A lot of millennials have great jobs, but on the side, they've got a publishing business or they've got a film blog or they're Ubering or they're bartending on weekends. Those are all great things to do. And, and millennials are very good about creating opportunities for themselves to do what they love. That only gets you so far. At some point, you have to decide, am I going to make a run of it or not? And if you decide, if you wait until you have the $120,000 saved up to where you can rest easy for a year and a half while you wait for the money to come in, if you wait, it'll never happen. You'll be 65 and you'll be at your retirement party saying, why didn't I launch that fashion line? Or why didn't I make that film that I wanted to make? Doing stuff on the side is good to a point, and lots of people do it. And But I think at some point, in order to give, if, if you're really out there to change the world, if you're really out there to disrupt an industry or create a, an original piece of art, or you're out there to really change people's lives, at some point, doing it on the side is not good enough. At some point, you have to make the decision, this is the direction in which I want to go, and you have to jump. And you... If you wait until all the safety nets are down there below you and the firemen are down below you with the financial uh, net to jump into, it will never, ever happen. So I would say that that's, if you're waiting, that's not a good reason to not pursue your passion and what you feel like your vision for your life is. And what typically happens is that you do, you jump, and typically if you hustle enough and you work hard enough, there will be something to catch you. Your, six, your own success will catch you, not the things in your mind that you thought or your safety net. And I'm mixing metaphors, but that's that's essentially the way that I feel that it works. So the people that are wildly successful are the ones that step out and do it without worrying about, is there gonna be enough money to pay you? 
Now, does that mean be stupid and not have a plan of action? No, not at all. In order to be a success in the first place, you have to have a plan of a plan of action. That means a business plan. That means um, you need to know what your expenses are going to be in the next 18 months, down to the penny, as much as possible. The more knowledge you can arm yourself with, the more likely the chances of your success. But that doesn't mean that you just never do it because all the numbers and the stars don't line up for you. Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess it's a tricky balance finding some kind of grounds that let you know this idea can actually work. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be able to feed my family and not go $100,000 into debt right. to make this happen. But at the same time, you never know. It's like when we go out to make a movie, we have a script and we kind of know what we want. But then we have to figure out a few things. Right. Uh, but at least we have a plan in mind and, and that's really good. So Scott, what would you say is your number one passion and how did you find it? Because I feel that's one of the elements to really hustle and go after that thing. Yeah. yeah. So that's a good question. I have uh, you know, a lot of things that I'm both good at doing and that I enjoy doing. I think the biggest passion I have is seeing people succeed and creating something that allows people to succeed. So when we created Push to Start, it was built around this idea that there were lots of startups and entrepreneurs doing really super exciting things, but that weren't necessarily being placed in a position where they could feel like they could succeed. And so we're for, uh, my background is in the law, so um, I wanted to do something in the entrepreneurial space, but didn't necessarily want to uh, ignore the talents and the skills that I had that I felt like could be contributed to people. So we said, how can we help these people? Ordinary people, most people do not go in uh, as Y Combinator alums or that have participated and gotten funding from you know the Google Venture Fund. Most people that are starting a business are the people that work on it after their kids go to bed at 9.30 at night or before their spouse gets up in the morning. At 5.30, they're, they're on the computer and they're, they're running numbers. Um, those are the kinds of people that I enjoy speaking with and the people that I enjoy helping making succeed because they're everyday, ordinary people. But they have this extraordinary vision and this extraordinary passion that makes them not ordinary. It makes them special. And there is a special type of person that um, can succeed as an entrepreneur, as a creative, as a visionary, as a futurist, as a doer, as a, as a craftsman. And all of those things tend to get uh, either, they get marginalized because you're e- either one of two things. You're either like a rebel and a maverick and you do crazy things to get attention. Uh, people like that get a lot of attention. The other people that get maybe not as much visible attention, but they are implicitly patted on the back are the team players, are the people that go and work for Big Corp every day of the uh, every day of the year, never complain and never think outside the box and just do what the man tells them to do. They get all the implicit recognition at work. So I'm very interested in helping those people that sort of fit neither into those um, you know, those those boxes, they're not a rock star and they're not smashing hotel rooms up. But but in their own way, in their own corporate world, they are. And they have aspirations for something bigger, something better. It's the thing that keeps them up at night. That's what keeps me. That's what makes gets me up in the morning. That's what keeps me going late is the idea of meeting those people and hearing what their vision is and somehow even sharing a little bit vicariously in, in that passion that they have. That's my real passion. 
That's really cool. I heard that quote that said, if you really want to be successful, you just need to make sure you help a ton of people be successful. So I can I can totally see that from you because I've read, I remember you posted about this one client of yours that is working really hard and sometimes even when you tell her you're not supposed to do that or you're not going to be able to do that, that person keeps coming at it and keeps working. And I was really happy when I read that because I could see how happy you were of being part of this other person's dream and how you're able to uh, help them do that. And that's really cool. So my next question is about your mentors. Can you tell me about people in your life that have helped you grow? Sure. I think I probably have three or four mentors um, in my life that particularly speak out to me. First of all, my father. Growing up, I was, I, I have the privilege of having a strong father in the household. And, you know, he shaped a lot of what my uh, spiritual views and my uh, work ethic, those are sorts of, those are the things that you need to establish a foundation in life uh, that's very hard to duplicate later in life, especially the sort of the work ethic. And my dad was, I remember him working, you know, 80 hours a week plus. He would work a day job and then he would go work a night job just to, at, at some points in life. Now, he's he's become since a successful doctor and a physician. Um, but I do remember those days when he would come home just like completely exhausted. And I always knew, I didn't realize it right away, but I always knew that he was doing what was right and what was best for his family. And that leaves an incredible impression. So obviously my father was a huge uh, mentor. Growing up in high school, um, I had a mock trial coach because I, I was a nerd. So in, in high school, I was on the mock trial team. My coach uh, was... Um, was a local lawyer at the time. Now he's uh, a judge, Jeff Atherton. He was incredibly um, influential in, in exposing me to the law and showing me, first of all, that the law is this almost sacred thing to pursue, um, that it is a noble calling. And, and so many people, again, it's probably a blessing and a privilege, but so many people have this negative view of lawyers. I was surrounded by lawyers of, um, especially him, high morals and high ethical standards and I could see what the law could aspire to and what you could do in the law so that really kind of and, and he taught me a passion and a love for uh, legal procedures and, and laws and rules and regulations and and how attention to detail and how parsing the 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 wording of something could become incredibly important and in the difference between success and failure so he was a, a mentor and he taught me a lot and then I had uh, a couple of professors in college that were just incredibly influential in my life um, taught me how to think, how to engage in rational discourse, which is incredibly lacking today in American society, to civilly disagree with other people and to passionately pursue your, your own position but keep your mind open to others. And they taught me how to write and they taught me how to work and study hard. and. Uh, those you know, three or four people have kept me, um, I think, grounded in who I am today. And I don't talk to necessarily all of them on a day-to-day -day basis. Some of them I do, um, but I, th their um, their integrity and their um, willingness to give this nerdy kid, you know, listen to my questions and show me how to do things was incredibly. Uh, 
deeply touching to me um, and will always, they're in my minds and, and their thoughts or their instruction are in my minds daily. You know, you, when people say, well, what does your conscience sound like or what does your, your guiding light in, in your head sound like? And it's definitely those mentors, those men that were there providing that guiding, those guiding principles during that time. That's really cool. So is there a couple people you could think right now that I should go and interview next? Just coming from this interview, people that you look up to that I should try to learn from them? It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter locally. locally. As long as it's in the U.S., we can go after them. Who should or you Cuba. talk to? I have, um, I do have some people. I can give you their, their names afterwards. Yeah, I don't want to say on camera without their permission. That's okay. Yeah. I, I had to try. Yeah, Maybe sure. I could trick you into it. <laughs> well, it's not a secret. <laughs> if they're willing to talk to you, I'm happy to, to make the connection. Yeah, I'm just kidding. What do you think young people like me should look for in a mentor? That's a great question. Um it's not one that can be easily sort of just, oh, we'll look for somebody that's, that has X, Y, and Z skills. It's not about, I think, the skills or what they've done in life, but it is partly about what they've done in life, but it's more about who they are. Is this something, somebody that's, first of all, willing to teach you? So many people run after personalities or the celebrity professor on campus or something and want advice from them. And advice from people is good, but you want somebody that's willing to actually give you the time of day. Um, and actually takes interest in what you're doing. And it's, it's hard to say, like, oh, you're going to take interest in me, so I'm going to attach on to you. But you should look for those qualities that you would like to see in yourself and then pursue the person for who they are, not necessarily what they've done. Um, that's very important. Obviously, you don't want to you know, pick a mentor that's either um, has you know, ethical or... Um, problems if they've been in jail maybe they could be a mentor if you've been in jail maybe you know maybe they maybe they have great life lessons to teach you so it's really about i, I don't know if there's a conscious decision to pursue a specific mentor it's it's about day-to-day -day doing what you know to do working hard showing yourself um to be a, a good student and a hard worker and and seeing who's willing to ask questions ask questions to everybody see what sticks that's kind of what you should look for in a mentor so now we're going to transition to the more of the how uh, of business and, in your case, uh, with the law. One question that I have always have, and I'm pretty sure lots of people have, is why is legal counsel so expensive and so complicated? Right. So that's a question. I think that that's perhaps one of the least understood portions of uh, the services that a, an attorney provides is that why it's so expensive. And people have touched on it. Part of it is uh, education. You know, you could easily spend $200,000 going to law school. Um, and that's in addition to undergrad. So there's a lot of time and effort that's put into things. You're in demand, so there's less lawyers than there are the people that need legal services. So there's obviously gonna be a premium on your time. And you're, you, you, because of the nature of law, it's very difficult to predict exactly how something is going to go. It's not like you're fixing a car in which you know that this product, you know, this piece or part needs to be replaced and then you're done. 
like you may get in and realize that oh we've got three years of hard work to do to protect your interests um, so as a result you end up paying by the hour and it can get very expensive that way it's also very hard to predict uh, probably though the biggest reason that legal services are expensive and this is something that people don't talk about is that when you are a lawyer you take an oath to represent that client and represent their best interests and to take those interests on as your own interests. Whether that be criminal, whether it be business, whether it be in, in civil litigation. And so as a result, you are paying for that person's, a part of their soul, essentially. And it sounds strange, but you know, if you go to someone for financial advice, they will provide you financial advice and then they'll go home and the, the financial advisor may not think about what you're, and doesn't have a duty to think about what your money is doing. Um, or you go to a car to get it replaced. The mechanic is gonna do his job and fix it and go home and think about something else. Lawyers live in this thing every day where, for example, say you're representing somebody on death row. You are paying for that lawyer to stay up at night and think and worry through the case. And the cases. For, for a good attorney, we'll, you will always internalize your client's uh, needs and you will put them, the, the code of ethics require that you put your client's interests ahead of your own. And there's no other profession that does that. And so you're paying for that attorney to have the heartache. And when you give your legal need to a competent attorney, the, a competent attorney, you should be able to go home and not worry about what's happening. And that's what happens. Um, you hire an attorney and you hire them to take that burden, that legal burden on themselves. And I think that that's not talked about a lot, but that's why an attorney services are really valuable because you're, they're doing something that no one else can do for you. Now, in your case, you started your own law firm. Right. Let's say someone is watching this, they're thinking about after college, what do they do? And maybe you could help us go through the one to three basic steps of creating your own business or creating your own law firm in your case, sure. how does that work? Sure. So the first thing you need to do is you need to have a good idea. Um, the vision, and, and it's not just good enough to have a good idea, you need to have what I would call the vision. That's the V, the first part of it, okay? Is that you need to have not just kind of a general idea, I wanna go out and sell I don't know, some t-shirts online, okay? You need to know why you're selling t-shirts online and, and what your market looks like and what is the chances for success selling t-shirts online. If you decide you wanna sell, I don't know, some uh, you know, self-branded t-shirts, well, who's gonna buy yourself, who's gonna buy your own brand? What is going to create a market for that? So you need to think about is my market large enough to, to do? And what are my chances of success in that market if I only get a piece of that market? So that all goes into the vision. And is, is your vision to help other people? If so, how are you going to help other people? Um, are you, Tom's had the vision that we're going to put shoes on the feet of kids who don't have shoes. Um, so they had a very sort of social justice vision. Um, other people have environmental visions. Other people just want to make a lot of money, which is perfectly fine. This is America. We're capitalists. It's, it's, it's perfectly acceptable to say, I want to make a lot of money and make a better life for my family and for my employees and for my shareholders. That's a, that's a great goal. Um, but you, those goals need to be concrete in your mind before you start moving forward. If you just decide that 
ah, you know, everybody's vaping, so I'm going to open a vape store. That's 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 not going to be a clue to success. You're going to be one of the restaurants, or you're going to be one of the vape stores, or one of the fashion boutiques that close down because there's just there's no vision behind what you're doing. Uh, so that's the vision's the first thing. I think the second thing is you need to have a plan. And that, that's distinct from a vision. A vision is what and how you're going to do it. But the plan is the actual steps. setting steps that you are going to get where you're going. Something that I see, and I, I have the privilege of talking to hundreds of entrepreneurs from very small businesses to incredibly successful multi-million dollar businesses every year. And one of the things that successful people do that I see people that are not as successful do is obsess about the actual nitty gritty. So we talked about expenses. You should know exactly how much it costs to operate your t-shirt business. And that doesn't include just, you know, this is how many t-shirts I'm going to buy and this is how much it costs to print them. You need to know how much your insurance is going to run. You need to know what your taxes are going to be. You need to make sure you're setting aside money for your taxes. It's that planning ahead and, and preparing for things that are going to happen, like your expenses. My lease is going to be $550 a month. You need to factor that into what how much it costs every year. Bef so before you can start making money, you have to know how much you're going to have to pay to make that money. What are my advertising costs? One of the big things I see that entrepreneurs do, and they, they start off hot and then the company quickly uh, runs out of, I could call it oxygen, is, is marketing budget. Everybody wants to get a market product to market, but nobody wants to spend the money once it's in market to, to actually give it room to grow. And in order to do that, you need marketing dollars. And that's the, when I look at a business plan, one of the first things I always ask about is, where are these marketing dollars? You know, where is the budget for them and where is that coming from? And is that sufficient? You know, 5% of your budget set aside for marketing is not sufficient, in my opinion. You need a, a sub, it needs to be one of the most expensive things on your list that you're spending money on. You also need to know where your money, that you do revenue, that to offset those expenses, where that revenue is coming from. If, you're, uh, if you just have general ideas, well, I'll just get out and I'll sell t-shirts and, and I'll make lots of money. Well, how many t-shirts do you need if you have $100,000 in expenses every year and you're selling t-shirts at $15 a t-shirt? How many t-shirts do you need to spend to, to sell in order to you know, make that money back? And the answer to that is, is important. And I see a lot of people don't know that. One thing I see people do that they tend to make a mistake on is projections in a business plan. A lot of times you will have projections that I consider random and worth less than the paper they're written on is they'll just say, well, in five years I'll be making, you know, we'll be selling 100,000 t-shirts. Okay, well, how many people want, um, you know, My Little Pony t-shirts? Is there 100,000 people that will buy one a year? So first of all, does your, does your product, is there a market for your product? And if there is, well then, but what makes you think that you're going to be able to sell those? And so if, if I have, when I'm reviewing a business plan or I'm talking to an entrepreneur and I see projections of numbers, they're going to be guesses. There's no absolutely no way to predict exactly what's going to happen with your product in the particular marketplace. Um, but I want to see more than just random. We will get there because you can't use that as a promise. And then the next thing I think is, and this is underrated, but it's, it's super important, is once you have your vision and you know how you're going to get there, you just have to do it. 
And when I do it, I say do it, I don't mean, you know, throw a fancy launch party and, and tell all your friends and talk on Facebook about it. I mean, like, actual hard work. And that's the part that a lot of people don't want to do. And that's the part we were talking about before. When you have the vision, but you're, you're stuck in a day job, right? Um, it's easy to think about when I get out, I'm going to be um, making you know, money and my business is going to be launched and it's going to be exciting. Well, but it, you're going to have to work at least twice as hard as you did at your day job to get there as a successful entrepreneur. You know that. You're, you're a successful entrepreneur. It's not, you don't get up in the morning and you, you waltz into work at 10 and then you, you go home at 5 and you don't think about it. Running a business or putting a vision in place is a 24-7 proposition for you. And it's got to be, it can't just be thinking about it, it has to be actual hard work. You have to go out and you have to do it yourself. And so many people, even I see startups, there's, there's this, I consider it a huge flaw in sort of the startup ecosystem, is that so many startups are excited about being startups more than they are about working hard and actually turning around a product that people buy. They go out and they get money, and they essentially use that money to perpetuate their own idea of I'm in a startup. This is a cool thing. People look at me. I, you know, we're cool. We're in an incubator. We, we have a slide in our office, and we play ping pong. Those things are less important to me when I'm evaluating the success of a company than are you working hard and are you turning a profit or, or are you shooting for a profit? That should be the ultimate goal. And in order to turn a profit, 100% of the time, you have to work hard. So I would say that those are sort of the things you need to think about as you go into business. They're not rocket science. I don't have to, you know, I'm certainly not the first person that said that those are sort of the ingredients to success. They've been the ingredients to success in my own life, and I'm sure they have in yours. Um, but those are sort of the three things that I would focus on. That's really good. Now, I know that you have talked to hundreds of people starting their businesses and getting funding and, and growing, and you're going through this with your some of your businesses as well. How can I take a business that is basically a service that depends on me being mm -hmm. there providing the service, how can I take that and scale it up? Yeah, that's a that's I think you're getting to what cutting edge businesses are focused on now. Um, that's right the heart of lots and lots of people, including us at Push to Start, we are asking that question is that traditionally there have been two types of, well, there's different types, but there's two types of main types of businesses. You've got the, the manufacturer who makes widgets and sells those widgets per sale. And then you've got the traditional firm model. They're consultants or they're filmmakers or they're lawyers or accountants or doctors and their service, their product is their service. And the more you talk about your service being a service, it's limited by what? How many hours in a day you can work. And the traditional way to scale that is hire someone else. And now you have two people whose services you are selling. But then you're limited because you know you have 20, 48 man hours in a day in order to give your services. And you can scale that up, but that does not, it typically doesn't affect your, it, you are limited by the fact that there's only so many hours in a day you can give. Uh, and you can't exponentially boost your bottom line. So what we are doing is we are saying, we are not going to think of our service as a business. We are going to shift our paradigm 
and begin thinking about our service as a product. And to do that, you have to say, well, how then can I make my service more like a product? Well, the first thing you want to do is you don't want to get rid of the hands-on service. That's what people are paying for. That's what they're pay paying a premium for. Um, but you have to think, are there ways that I can replicate this to break out of the so many man hours in a day? And even products, if you're even manufacturing widgets, there's only so many widgets that an employee can help manufacture in a day. So there, there is ultimately an end to that sort of curve. But, but most people don't think about their services in terms of a product. They think about it in terms of a service they're giving. And I think you need to change the way you're thinking about it in terms of what kind of thing are you selling to the person. And are there different business models other than the traditional service model that will actually boost your profit margins? And I think that there's, especially in the service industry, there's a lot of room for that. That's really interesting. I have I've been trying to figure that out with media and the commercial side of my business, trying to bring more people in and expand. And I wanted to ask you about that because I can see that we push to start. When you first told me about the whole concept, I was like, of course, like you can only be a lawyer to so many people, but if you use technology to mm -hmm. help you and bring other people and create a right. bigger thing, I mean, you have no limit. Right. You can grow and grow and grow. and the opportunities are, are going to be insane. Now, my next question has to be with family. I asked this to other people in the show and I want to hear from you. How do you balance your family life with your business and career and all the things that you want to accomplish and how do you bring those together? You don't. No, I'm, I'm sort of joking, but it is, it's very, very difficult. Um, because you're not sort of a nine to five job when, when you're out there hustling, you're out there hardworking. Hard work takes time. And there's, a, again, there's only so many hours in the day, no matter what kind of thing you're offering. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to make fam family a priority. If you don't prioritize it first, you'll never get there because you will, there will always be another email to answer. There'll always be another phone call or sales uh, lead to, to talk to and discuss things with. And, and at some level, your first duty is to provide for your family, right? That's your duty is to make a better life for your children and your family, your, your mother, your father, whoever you're providing for. Um, but you will ki literally get yourself killed if you don't stop and create a work-life balance. So I hate the word intentional because it doesn't mean anything, but... Um, it is kind of intentional. Like you have to decide in advance, this is the time that I'm gonna spend with my, my family. Um, I'm going to make time for them. And you, you kind of have to do it maybe. And, and part of the advantage of doing something on your own is maybe you're in an industry in which you can take time in the middle of the day to go see your kids uh, at lunch or go pick them up from school. Um, but it, it is very important, I think, um, you know, when you're hustling, you're working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, it's hard to do. It's something you just have to make time for. Do you have like a formula, like a day that you say, okay, this day or this time? Yeah, so I have two little kids. Um, they're four and a half and almost a year and a half. And we try to do, when I try to, when I get home from work, I try to get home, at, there may be a ton of work to do um, and it's gonna get done. But I try to come home at dinner time have dinner with them, 
play with them in the evening, watch a movie with them, you know, wrestle around, do whatever, give them baths, put them to bed, then think about doing work. So I've always tried to give them the evenings so that they know that there's some sort of stability. I've, I'm used to working a lot on weekends. I've tried to either say, well, I'm going to do that like on a Sunday afternoon or Saturday morning when the kids aren't you know, there are, there's no ball games. Try to arrange it so you can maximize the amount of time. And going and planning things is a good way to say, you know, I am at the movies with the kids or I'm at the zoo with the kids. I'm not available to take a call from the office because the, the office will blow me up 24 hours a day and clients will blow you, blow you up 24 hours a day. And that's good. That's part of it. But you need to, at some point, you can't be afraid. And this is something I have really struggled with. You can't be afraid to put down the phone and say, I will call you back later. Uh, because if they're calling you at 11 o'clock at night, I mean, you know, um, they probably need something, but it could probably wait. Um, so that's, the, you know, kind of the way. It's always a learning. It's a learning experience. And as they get older, it's going to change again, right? So. so, Scott, what's your definition of success? Success can be measured in a lot of ways. You can measure success in the amount of dollars that you raise um, the, the, your revenue numbers. Um, a lot of people measure success in, traditionally in the startup world. If you were able to make a, an exit uh, at a premium, you know, at least as much as was put into the company, if you can be sold for that, that's considered a success. I think a success, though, is are you doing something you're passionate about? Are you able to do that and generate enough revenue to keep your family comfortable um, and are you doing what you feel like you're supposed to be doing and are you helping other people and yeah it's it's like it's cliched to say like success is measured by the people that you help but it's it, there's some truth to that I think um, I think success is whatever you define in your mind at the beginning at the vision stage and achieving that is success uh, achieving something close to that is success Say you worked a nine-to-five job and you went out and did something on your own and you failed at it and then you found yourself back at the same nine-to-five job. Is that a failure or is that a success? A lot of people would say, well, he failed. He's back at the company. But if your goal was to go out and be your own person and not be tied to the man, there is some success there. And I think that there is a lot of learning success. And then maybe the next time you do it, you do it again. Or maybe you decide you don't want to do it. I think that there can be success even from your failures. So don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to succeed. Um, but do it quickly. You know, be, be conscientious about it and do it, not linger and not make either one. If you're not going to have those safety net in place, just go ahead and jump. So we're almost done. My next question is, what do you see for yourself in the next four or five years? Like, what are your dreams for the next five years? We envision helping thousands of entrepreneurs around the United States. We help hundreds of entrepreneurs, but we would be, we've, we would define success as being the leading provider of business formation services and startup legal services for uh, entrepreneurs in the United States. There are products out there that are non-lawyer based products that a lot of people use. Um, and I won't call any out specifically, but we believe that we have a great opportunity to replace those services which we don't believe are, are maximizing entrepreneurs' potentials. They're certainly not maximizing their time or their value. Uh, we believe that we will be the 
um, leading provider of business services for new businesses, small businesses, startups um, in the United States within five years. That's, that's how we would measure success, by the number of entrepreneurs that we are able to help in a given year. Now, last question. What top advice would you give people like me trying to improve and grow? How can they live at the highest level possible? Work hard. It's like super basic, but it's super underrated. Um, there is no magic formula that beats good hard work. You can be super talented and you can be super creative. You can be super smart. And those things will get you so far for so long. But ultimately, in order to get to the, the high level and operate on the next level than you're doing, is getting up every morning and putting in the hours of work. work. Coming home from work and putting your kids to bed and hitting your computer and, and knocking out that new company or that vision. Or spending your weekends shooting, actually get out and work hard and shoot that short film you've been working on. Or, or go in and record that those songs that you've been writing in the back of your head. Actually go out and do, but you have to do it in a hard, purposefully... Uh, hard-working manner and some people call that the hustle so you know get out there and hustle there's nothing that beats that that's great thank you so much thank you guys for this no thank you for you thank you for having me yeah, I appreciate it my pleasure thank you guys for watching this was high level my name is Axel Arsola and we'll see you in another episode